good morning. Please be seated. How are you all doing today? Marcus, thank you. That'll make it tough. Good thing I'm not speaking today. That's a bad sign when they shut you off early. Hey, it's a beautiful day in the house of the Lord, and we're glad that you're here. But we are all of a sudden extremely busy, and so I wanted to take a moment before Rod comes up and speaks with you this morning and just let you know about a couple of things that are happening, maybe more than a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank the ladies for their event on uh, Saturday. It's great to hear that was such a good turnout. Thank you, ladies, for putting that together. Um, it's fun to see your grown wife come home with artwork. So now we have something that we can compare to all the other children. We'll set that up there, and we now have the standard. Please, my honey did good. Joy, that's what she wrote on hers. It was a beautiful thing. Um, also, I want to let you know about the connection cards. There's new connection cards in the back of the seat. There's some new information in there. If you don't get confused, we're just kind of updating everything. If your phone numbers change, your address has changed, or any of your information's changed in a while, uh, feel free to fill out a connection card and let us know. Um, we have lost contact with a couple of people, and maybe it's purposeful. I don't know, but uh, it always makes me feel good that I can get in touch with you. And if something's going on with your family or whatever, don't forget those connection cards are also there for you to let us know. We love praying for those. We pray for those on Wednesday, um, Wednesday morning with the elders. So if you have something, maybe just fill it out early so that you don't forget, and then you can drop all your connection cards, any uh, information you have in those white four boxes um, just outside of the door. Also, today was the rebirth of the name tags, which... I don't know if you've been here long enough to read It's been about three or four years since the name tag. We're, we're just that church that's hanging on to all those things. We got stained glass windows. We got name tags. We might have to bring the meet and greet back. I mean, we're, just, we're hanging on, church, and uh, we're going to let everybody else run out in front and do all the newfangled stuff, and we're just going to hang out with the old thing. We want to know people's names, and uh, so the tables are out there. So thank you, Romy and Debbie, for helping us out with that this morning. That was beautiful. Um, also, want to let you know that Bill's doing some food drive stuff, so Fresh Beginnings Ministry, there's a couple of boxes out there, so you can check back there on the tables to see what they're looking for in food, and then you can just bring your food every week and then just drop it in those boxes. Um, anything that Bill can't use, I'm sure he uses everything that you can bring, but there's probably lists and other things back there, so you can check with Bill. He's actually back there monitoring his boxes right now. Um, Leslie and uh, Chuck are getting ready to start Grief Share, and that's going to be on Saturday, November 19th at 11.30. That's the good news. The bad news is, is Leslie decided to break her ankle after Chuck decided to be miraculously healed. So um, the two of them need to coordinate the miraculous healing, but Leslie needs a volunteer to help her. So if you're available on Saturday, November 19th at 11.30, and you'd like to just be a volunteer to kind of help her move things around, she needs one volunteer for Grief Share. It's a really important ministry. Uh, that helps people that have gone through really difficult things kind of process these uh, difficult times. And then one other thing I just wanted to let you know, Rod will be speaking this morning. If you have any questions about anything that's going on, especially in regards to the Thanksgiving service for next month, we have about five or six praises and two miracles that have already been turned in for that. It's going to be an exciting service. We're also talking to some people about baptism. So if you have not been baptized or if you know someone who wants to be baptized, please let me know and I can work that out with you. We'd like to do it all next month on that Thanksgiving service so we can have something to share with the audience. At this time, I'm going to pray, and then Pastor Ron will come up and share with you this morning. Father God, first and foremost, we thank you for once again to getting us to Sunday. It seems like every week is more and more things out there in the world trying to drag us down and more and more distractions that try to speak lies to us, Father. But the truth of it is there's, there's no place that we'd rather be than in the house of the Lord. So we're grateful to be with our brothers and sisters this morning and just seeing my brother Tony come in and knowing all the different things that he's had to go through just to be here. And also praying for my sister Terry, who's out there, I'm sure, watching online, Father, healing for her. And just for some of the conversations that have already happened, Father, just at the stairs this morning about people that are truly struggling with health and trying to figure out what to do with their parents. And just all the different things that make life a, a struggle, Father. I just pray that you would comfort them. Thank you for making church a priority. Thank you for making you a priority in our life, Father. I pray that you would... Be with us this morning, that you'd open our hearts, open our minds, clear away all the different rocks and weeds that are filling our good fertile soil, Father, that we can hear the word of God and be encouraged and then challenge ourselves to, to go out there today and be a witness, Father. There's no, there's no better thing in the world than to be a witness, and especially in light of what's coming up tomorrow night. I also want to pray that the church would just go out there and represent, that there's a lot of different things that the world will be offering, but I pray that they can offer the hope of Jesus Christ to anyone that comes to their door. Father, may everything we continue to say and do in this build building bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Jeff. 
and it's a privilege to be here. I'll get this position just right, I think. And um, I, I, I want to say right up front, it's a blessing for me. I'm, I'm new to the church family, and I am so glad with this name tag idea. I mean, this is like a dream come true for me. I'm greeting all of you like I'm your best friend, like we go way back. It's all about the name tag, although I notice most of the worship team weren't wearing their name tags. So, well, I think Pastor, Pastor Jeff's going to be giving them a talking to after the service. I'd like to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. Uh, it's a great thing to get to know one another, and I do love it. They didn't know. Now they're going to be upset with me. I'm just giving them a hard time. Uh, I want to talk to you today about James 4, and we're continuing in this series, and I've been blessed to be a part of it, and boy, God's Word speaks to us. It doesn't always tell us what's easy to hear, and boy, do we get to that today. Today, we're looking at a passage that's going to have things that we say, boy, I don't want that in my life at all, but other things will say, no, I want that. Amazing contrast in today's passage. And I got a, a snapshot look at how life can be that way uh, just recently. I was leaving my house, and I have a, a pickup truck, and as I leave uh, and driving a little ways on my street, I look over and there's a bandsaw just sitting on the curb. And I like to do a little woodworking. I've wanted a bandsaw for a long time. I have, I just wanted this saw. It's, it's part of, you know, woodworking. And, and there it is, sitting there, and I'm thinking, can that really be free? So I, I go, I see it, I knock on my neighbor's door, and he says yes. He says, I'm just giving it away, it works fine, needs you know, a little tuning up, this and that. I was thrilled. I put it in the bed of my truck, I drove back home. Well, as I'm unloading it, I look and there's a little gray bag in the bed of my truck. I'm like, what is this? It's a little trash bag, just this big, and it's kind of got a round part at the bottom, and then it's tied in a little knot, and it's it's just this bag, and I'm like, well, this is strange, and I pick it up out of my truck, and I kind of smush it, kind of mushy, <laughs> and I'm like, well, this, what is it, and I draw it a little closer, <laughs> and it stinks, it's horrible, and I realize what has happened. S someone, evidently, when they were cleaning up after their little dog, decided to clean up, thank you, that's very considerate, but it's not considered to throw it in the bed of my truck. And in this moment, and I was, you need to know, I was elated about the bandsaw. I've wanted one for a long time. Should I buy it? Should I not? Can I afford it? And God gives it to me for free. And I'm like just lifting up my hands and praise God, you are so good. And there I am in looking at the bed of my truck. And I'm like, boy, talk about extremes all rolled into one moment. <laughs> Something that I very much want and something I don't want there at all. Now that might seem like an unusual, even a little disgusting of illustration. The words we're going to read here today are far more disgusting than I just shared with you. If you're going to read a description, you're going to hear me if you read along. Verses 1 to 10 of James 4, you're going to read words and say, Lord, I don't want that to be a part of my life at all. And you're going to see other things you very much want to have part of your life. The extremes are amazing in this passage. And when I read over it, I'm like, wow, this is, this is an incredible passage. But it ends with one of the most beautiful invitations you'll ever find in the Bible. And I want us all to answer it. I want us all to hear this invitation and say, yes, Lord, that's me. Yes, Lord. So let me read it for you. Uh, we're in James chapter 4, as I've said, verses 1 to 10. Listen to this. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world and makes himself or makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage from your word. It is true. It was given by you for our edification. We want that, Lord. We just bring ourselves before you with open hearts, a willingness to be humble and learn and grow. So, Lord, please speak through me. Let uh, my words be of you, and let the scripture just uh, minister to us. We want you to receive the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Were the extremes there? My goodness, some of the things that are said in that passage. You're thinking, no, Lord, you almost cringe. Please don't let that be me. And yet there's other things said that you're like, oh, I want to be that person. Well, I want us to take a closer look at it and see how we can apply it. I have a few points here I'll share with you. I think there's room in your, your bulletin if you want to take some notes. But the first summary statement I'll make from this reading is point number one, we must control our passions. We must control our passions. A passion has become, I think, a little more of a positive word in recent years. More and more people talk about, what are you passionate about? And that's fine. That's, that's a good way to understand what our values are and what makes our heart beat. What are you passionate about? And so we hear that more and more, but it's used in this case in a way that isn't so good. It's, it's, it's a little more negative. It's, it's leading to very bad things because the passions are not of the Lord and they're winning out in the battle within a person. And we get the proof in the passage I read. Verses 1 and 3, it repeats that word passions and that repetition is to be noted. There's a point here he wants us to take to heart. And he looked, then he lists all these descriptions that come out of it when our passions are getting the upper hand. It says fights and quarrels. It repeats that phrase. It just switches the order. You know those words were normally used for national warfare. And that gives a sense of how bad it has become. And it says your desires, that's part of what's creating this. That word desires comes from a Greek word hedonon, from which we get hedonism. It's a philosophy that views pleasure as the chief goal of life, but it actually leads to death. And then in verse 2, it even says the word murder. You desire and do not have, so you murder. I react to different ways to that word. When I first read it, I said, no, that, that's just got to be symbolic. That can't be literal, because he's writing to what? His brothers, constantly in James, he's, he's writing to churches. These are his brothers in Christ. How is he saying, what kind of church, you know, you, you've been to some rough churches in the, your day, but, but they're murdering each other? How could this be possible? So that's just figurative. And I think it is primarily that. You think of in Matthew 5, Jesus equates hatred with murder in terms of the consequence. 1 John 3.15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So when it says murder here, it probably, in, in the vast majority of cases, doesn't mean literally. And yet, one commentary I read said it could have meant that. This is a time in history where the Jews who became Christians, they, they were a violent people. They were fighting to overthrow Rome. They were very violent, and they would murder Remember what happened to Stephen? He just preached about Jesus. He's in the temple. And in preaching about Jesus, how did they respond? They drove him to the edge of the city and they stoned him to death. They murdered him. And so James is aware of some of these examples. What happened to the apostle Paul? It was the Jews who persecuted him. They stoned him thinking he was dead. They beat him many times. And so that word murder could, and these quarrels and these fights may not just be, you know, verbal arguments. It could literally mean it has become that 
bad. And James is addressing this issue and saying, where does it start? It starts with the passions in your heart, your desires that are going unmet, your view of how things ought to be for you. And if it doesn't happen, all sorts of bad things follow. In verse 2, it says you covet. That's in the same idea. You've got this passion. You want it. And so you covet it. And then it also talks in verse 6 about being proud. God opposes the proud. That feeling that, hey, I should have this. I have a right to this. This passion, pride, covetousness, these selfish desires are leading to fights, quarrels, and even murder. That's a list that shouldn't describe anyone, much less Christ followers. We must yield our passions to the Lord. There's a huge thing to discern how we're doing with our own passions and if they're of the Lord. Because I said at the start, some passions are of God. We need to be passionate about things in life. But here's something to think through. If your passions aren't fulfilled, how do you react? How do you handle it? Do you find yourself blaming? Do you find yourself attacking others? Is there an anger, a quarrelsomeness that starts to stir in you? That's what's happening here, and that's an indicator that we need to face it. And the issue is the warring. We have godly passions and ungodly ones, and the ungodly ones want to win out. And so we have to look, are my passions of greed? Is there selfishness? Are they impure, dark, petty, small, jealous, vain, indulgent? Am I being mean towards others? And if that happens, it could even affect our prayer life. And it says you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because what you're asking for is not of the Lord. I came across an interesting story. And some of these are kind of folklore, but whether it was literally true or not, but it's a story about Leonardo da Vinci. He was working on his painting, The Last Supper. But something happened and he became angry with a a certain man. And he lost his temper and he totally lashed out at this guy. And you talk about an argument, a quarrel. He he just spewed out these bitter words that were hurtful to him. And as this ended, he went back to work. Went back to his studio or the, the church where he was painting. And he tried to return to painting the Last Supper of Christ. And you've seen it, you've heard about it, one of the most famous paintings in the world. But it says in this story, as he attempted to paint the face of Jesus, he just couldn't do it. There was something inside him, too much conflict, too much anger, still just seething over what happened. And he realized the conviction was from God. How does he paint the face of Jesus when he's feeling that much anger and hatred towards someone else? So finally, he just, ah, you know, shrugs, puts down his paintbrush, and he sought out the man, and he made things right. He talked it over, and he asked for forgiveness. He reconciled. The man forgave him. And having settled that, Leonardo returned to his famous painting, The Last Supper, and painted the face of Jesus. And that's considered one of the great masterpieces of all time. How we handle the passions that war within us will have a huge impact on our faith with the Lord. And it's hard to be close and right with Jesus when we're in such a wrong place in relationships with others or even within ourselves. And I talked at the start about things in us we don't want to have there, and this passage is pointing them out. And I hope it's something that you're willing to wrestle with and think through. Is it time to deal with the harm caused by your own passions? Maybe the passion that's been getting the best of you is physical. It might have to do with physical temptation or attraction, something of the flesh. Maybe the passion that has been working its way into your heart is all about money and wealth, and it's consuming you, and it's become a passion, how much you have or don't have or getting more. Maybe the passion is for more power, more authority. You'd like to have a little more say in some area of your life or work, And you become passionate about seeing things change to your advantage. It could be anything else, something else. 
It could even be something God has created in this world that in and of itself is good. But we've become so passionate about it, it's taken us to a bad place. Even though in and of itself it's fine, it's good. But our passions are warring and we're losing that battle. This passage is telling us we got to face that. We got to deal with that. Now, if you haven't been convinced yet, let's move on to point number two, because I want you to see where this leads. If we let our passions that war within us, that are not of the Lord, get the upper hand, get the victory, it takes us to this place. Point number two, worldliness makes you an enemy of God. These passions can make us very worldly because the passions are of the world. They're ungodly, fleshly things, and it leads to a place where we can become an enemy of God. I could not believe it when the worship team led us in that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. We, and that's a beautiful song, right? We never sing What a Friend We Have in the World. You know, It's not something we sing for good reason, as you heard here. God is not calling us to be a friend of the world but rather a friend of him. And it even steps it up, doesn't it? It says, if you're a friend of the world, friendship with the world is enmity, that's hatred. And it makes us an enemy of God. And it even steps it up more, and it talks about adultery. You say, well, why is that? When God saves us through the death of Jesus he died on the cross for our sins. He rose on the third day. And through that death, that's that gift of his life that brings salvation, when that happens, we become the bride of Christ. We become his. We, we're in a relationship with him. And we would need to be faithful to him alone. And it's saying, when we befriend the world, we're committing adultery. Now, that's strong language. And it's there to get our attention and to show us how wrong this is is we like to sometimes think no no it's all good lord i've got these two pals in my life i've got god here you know my arms around the lord and over here i have the world and you know both just are, are great and god has said no it doesn't work that way having your arm around the world that friendship actually god considers it adultery it's abhorrent in his eyes it's as if we're cheating on him. And we've seen the harm when we go in that direction. It leads to quarreling and fighting. And so we must turn from the values of the world and the ways of the world. And James isn't the only one to point it out. 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? In befriending the world, they had become enemies of one another and enemies of of God. To be a worldly Christian has become a real problem, I believe, for us in the church. And we don't even realize it. And it's when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, but we still cling to our old ways of living. The world refers to all that is opposed to God. And we must turn from it and turn to him and put our trust fully and completely in him otherwise it's adultery did you see that verse that says the spirit envies intensely he yearns with jealousy when we believe in jesus the lord's spirit fills us the holy spirit indwells us and and the lord wants a relationship with us and the spirit he gave us when we turn from him to the world it is rejecting what the lord would have and he's jealous he says, you are mine, you were bought with a price. So my second question, I've asked you a few to wrestle with, here's one. How has worldliness crept into the way you're looking at life, your values and your priorities? Sometimes it's from a warring within, sometimes it's pressure from without. Years ago when I had just become a Christian, this is many years ago because I was a high school kid, I was, in a, I was a senior in high school and I had a group of friends in a certain class, math class, and they loved to put everyone down. I mean, it was all about put downs. And if you think back to high school, or some of us are, are still in high school, some of you, uh, not, not, I say us, I'm not, but, but 
there's, there's, it's nothing but put-downs. And you remember. And you remember sometimes you're standing in a group and you're ready, okay, who's going to be first here? And there's almost a little uneasiness because there's just never-ending criticism and put-downs for a laugh. And I was in this class and that was the environment. But I wasn't doing it. Because I'm like, that's not what God would want. And I become a Christian. And, and the, the sad, tragic thing for me is that they pressured me so much to put this one kid down, and they kept after me and kept after me, I finally gave in. And I made, I made some dumb comment. And it, it was just stupid. And they said, oh, that was stupid. And so they ended up criticizing me more, and he felt bad. And it was a real sad moment in my friendship with this guy. And I later apologized. But, it, but in that moment, I had all this pressure of how to handle something from the world. And I finally caved in. Sometimes we forget how often, or we don't realize how often the world is pressuring us to conform to a certain way of living and thinking and being. And that pressure is constant. And we've got to be willing to at least see it for what it is, how ugly and horrible and wrong, and say, no, Lord, I'm not going to do it. And in my moment of failure, God has ultimately did use that for good because I was so convicted by that, it shaped me. So then years later, I became a youth pastor. And when I heard it in students, I'd call them out on it. And I told them, you need to memorize a verse. Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Just the guilt over my failure, God used for good because it shaped me and I thought I want to help others with this word. And so students would memorize it and, I'd, and they'd come up to me later and they'd quote that verse and it was like music to my ears. It's like, thank you, don't make the same mistake that I did. So I want to ask you, are there values that have crept into your way of thinking or acting or behaving that are of the world. And maybe even now, God's convicting you with something. Something that you're like, yeah, I, I've been given into a passion. I've been given into a worldliness. And it's just become too big a priority. Or it's, it's just making me dark in my thoughts. Or there's an, there's an anger or there's an unsettledness. And it's just not of God. I, and, and God's bringing that to mind. Maybe it's very specific that's happened. Maybe it's more general. But just let the Lord work with you in that. And if there's conviction, yield it to him. And now we're going to talk about what to do. This is I talked to you at the start about how there's all this horrible stuff that you don't want to read. But there's so much good as well. And now we're going to look at the good. Third point I want you to hear. Humble yourselves before the Lord humble yourselves. Admit your failures, your sin, your selfishness, your worldliness. Own it. Confess it. Put away the pride. As it says here, God opposes the proud. If we get defensive, we will not win with God. He opposes. That's from a military term meaning to battle against. When we are proud before God, when we do not yield, he says, okay, I will oppose you in that place. That means he battles against us. Do you want to battle against God? Do you want even 10 minutes of that, let alone a day, a week, a month, a year? <laughs> you, you won't win that battle. People have tried, and they dig in, and they have a miserable season of life because of it. He opposes the proud. He battles against us. So we must not be proud. Proud. Don't expect God to bless that. Leave the friendship with the world and return to God. And so it says submit. That's a military term. It means be subordinated. Render obedience. Be humble. And such amazing things happen when we're broken and humble before God. And when we can live that way, and, and it says he'll lift us up, but it takes a humble, humble heart to own it. I, I saw this interesting story on being humble and lifted up. Uh, this is from Corey Ten Boom. It was told about her. You remember Corey Ten Boom? She was just a famous author and speaker. 
Uh, she suffered greatly in concentration camps during World War II because her family helped protect Jews and, and keep, try and keep them from the Nazis. And eventually she's captured and put in a concentration camp, became a speaker and author, just a, a godly woman. And she was revered and looked up to by so many because of the stand she took. And so one time she was asked if it was difficult for her to remain humble. And her reply was simple. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the head of the donkey that all of that was for him? <laughs> she continued, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I will give him all the praise and all the honor. Just a humble heart to say, Lord, however you want to use me, I bring myself to you. I want to be your servant, and I want to advance your kingdom however you would have. And that's what this passage is telling us to do, to put away the pride, the arrogance, the selfishness, the worldly passions, and yield ourselves to God. It says draw near to God. That's a humble submission. But with that, there has to be a turning away from. And so even as it's giving us these encouraging words, it's telling us to turn away from these other things. It says cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. It even says be wretched, mourn, weep. It says you're mourning and gloom. Gloom is literally a downcast look with lowered eyes. This is one of the harshest passages you will read in the Bible to Christians. It's amazing how strongly worded it is. And some of you might say, I don't want to read that. This isn't what I came here for today. But God put it here for all of us to give us a warning that we don't stray from him into the world and let pride and materialism and worldliness just rob us of what God wants to do in our lives. And so he's saying, oh, see for how horrible it is and purify your hearts, mourn and weep and get this out of your lives. And when we do that, God welcomes us to him. But it takes that brokenness. Think of the prodigal son. When did his life finally turn the corner? When he was willing to be humble and broken and starving. And he simply admitted, I've sinned against my father in heaven. And he says it. When he returns to his father, Luke 15, 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's that broken humility that brings us back to God. And so this passage gives 10 imperatives. Whenever there's an imperative in the Greek, it's a command. It's something we need to listen to and take to heart. And it gives 10 commands in just seven verses or four verses. Submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, be wretched, mourn, weep, change, and be humble. But oh, look at the words of promise and blessing when we do. When we do, God gives grace, it says in verse 6. God's grace is his unmerited favor. The love of God for people who deserve the exact opposite. Isn't that an amazing thought? When we humble ourselves, it says he gives his grace, his favor, his blessings. And that is so good that we can even then win the battle and resist the devil. Did you see that in verse 7? It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why would the devil flee from you? Are you more powerful than he is? Not at all. Well, why would the devil flee from you? Because of God's grace. Because the closer you are to God, the more the devil then would have to be close to God, and he doesn't want that. The devil will flee from you. It's an amazing statement that that can happen. And that's just what Jesus did. He resisted the devil when he was tempted. He quoted scripture, and the devil fled from him. It doesn't say you need to defeat the devil. It says simply resist him. And then it says, draw near to God, 
and he will draw near to you. What an amazing promise. When we're humble and we come near to God, it's like the prodigal son and his father. God who's enthroned on high, does he sit there on the throne with his arms crossed? Well, if you want to come back to me, that's all you. I'm not going anywhere. This is my throne. I'm almighty God. I'll stay right here. You want to work your way back? Okay. It doesn't say that at all. It actually says as we draw near to God, God draws near to us. And you picture the prodigal son as he's returning to his father. What did the father do? He ran to his son. What a God we serve. What a God. When we draw near to him, he draws near to us. It's as if he's overjoyed that we've come back to him. We want to be right with him. And he just reaches out and embraces us as we come near to him. He gets up and he runs. And then it doesn't end there. It says when he comes to us, when we seek God, it says he actually lifts us up. It says he catches us up in his arms. And my version, verse 10, this is ESV, says he will exalt you. What a statement. Matthew 23, 12 says the same thing. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God instills in us a value, a purpose, and a call. We are his children, his chosen ones, his dearly loved friends. And when we humble ourselves before him, he will lift us up. These are amazing words of promise when we acknowledge our need for him and his involvement in our lives. During COVID, a lot of people were discouraged. A lot of ministry that was going on as it normally had been stopped. And it was a difficult time for pastors, for missionaries. But I got a great encouraging email from one during that time. And here's what he writes. There was closures. He was serving in Africa in a very dangerous part of Africa. And he says this. This has been a very interesting and challenging season for the church. Most of us have had to physically close our doors and cancel live in-person services. Many of us are wondering how effective we can be when our traditional means of ministry have been changed so dramatically. What is God asking us to do? And in that moment, he was just sad. He was discouraged. But in humility, he asked for God to lead, to use him. He came to the Lord seeking him. He drew near to God. Help me, Lord, and let me bless others. He goes on to say, in his case, it was easy as answering the telephone. He said, I recently received a call on our church phone from a man named Muhammad. He said he was a Muslim and had many questions about Christianity. He did a search on the Internet and found our church. After more than an hour on the phone with him, he said he wanted to become a Christian. I prayed with him, and he accepted the Lord as his Savior. Although Muhammad is a national of our host country, he chose our international church over a national church to keep from being identified and to avoid potential persecution. Amazing. He's just humbly wanting to serve God, this pastor. Can't have churches he's always had. But God says, I'm still going to use you. And a phone call comes in, and he leads this Muslim to the Lord. Here's what he writes after that. I've continued ministering to Muhammad over the past couple of weeks. He shared with me that he was a jihadist fighting with the Islamic terrorists in our country. Since coming to know Jesus, he has laid down his gun and repented from that lifestyle. Although it's all he'd known for much of his life, he no longer understands why Muslim terrorists seek to kill and destroy others. Says he feels like a completely new person. His life of anger and wrath has now been replaced with love, joy, and peace. He's now begging me for literature he can share with other Muslims to show them the way to a new life. He has a particular passion for introducing other jihadists to the transforming power of Christ. Much like the Apostle Paul, the Lord has dramatically changed him from persecutor to evangelist. Our church is located in a hostile region of the world that is under constant threat of terrorist attack. Many of the internationals attending our church are considered high-value targets. 
For security reasons, we have had to maintain a low profile in marketing our church so as not to make the terrorists aware of our existence. Apparently, I failed in that effort. The last thing I expected was for the Lord to lead a terrorist directly to our church to find him. I've been asking what God can do with our international church during this time of closure. Like many of you, I've just been trying to keep our church functioning online as I struggle with technology and recording services from my living room. I was doubting how effective our church is in this season. God just keeps saying, make yourself available. Just make yourself available. And then he ends with this question. Why do I find this so difficult to remember? Just make yourself available. Just humble yourself and seek the Lord. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This passage is heavy hitting and there could be conviction you're feeling as part of it. But I hope there's also encouragement. I hope there's also that sense that God isn't done with my story and what he's doing. He loves me enough to save me through the blood of Jesus, and I need to draw near to him. And if there's a passion that you're struggling with that God has put on your heart, as the worship team soon as they're going to come back up, I'm going to lead us in prayer. But I want to encourage you, this is a time just to be yielding those things to the Lord. You've read a passage that talks about the dangers of letting your passions get the best of you. And sometimes relationships end, Jobs are lost. Friendships go through terrible times of struggle and are broken and even end because the passions that war within us get the victory instead of Jesus getting the victory when we draw to him. But when we have a humble heart, consider Corey Ten Boom, consider my pastor friend, the missionary. When we have a humble heart and we say, Lord, just use me however you will. I want to yield these things to you. It's not me, it's all you. When we approach God that way, oh, the things he will do. And the changes in our own lives and the lives of others that will take place. So if today God has put something on your heart during this time, I'm going to lead us in prayer. Just yield it to him. Ask him to forgive. This is a time to return to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you that you are so good and so gracious, so loving that when we humble ourselves before you, you lift us up. When we draw near to you, you draw near to us. You pour out your grace, Lord, when we're broken, when we seek forgiveness, when we confess. And so, Lord, I pray you would work those things in us. Lord, we want the victory over the temptations and the passions that war in us. We don't want what you created as good to be bad because it consumes us. And Lord, we do not want the world to be our friend. We have a friend in you, the one who loves us and has saved us. So Lord, I pray you'd use this passage in James to get a hold of our lives. Let it be a moment, a marker, a turning point for us as we confess, as we humble ourselves and we come before you. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you for Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We confess and give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Can I give you a benediction? Uh, let me give you a benediction from number six. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the nod. I wasn't expecting this, but uh, traditionally, as I've told many of you, I was pastored many years at Harbor Trinity across town, and uh, I would always end with a benediction. So it's my, my pleasure to share this with you. This is from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, both now and forever, amen. <laughs>